Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. In answer to Thomas, uh, this is what Jesus said. Jesus told him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It's a bold, strong statement of Jesus, our Lord. Uh, In a world, however, where the ways we determine objective truth are increasingly questioned, the clear declaration of Jesus has to be wrestled with. Can we believe Jesus or not? Can we believe he's the way, the truth, and the life, or or can we not? Several years ago, uh, Dan and I had the privilege of uh, sitting under the teaching of a Christian anthropologist, and he would always joke about that. He would say, I'm not sure that you've ever heard those two words together, Christian and anthropologist, put in the same sentence. But he said, uh, he said I am actually a believer, and uh, I'm also an anthropologist. It was great sitting under his teaching. He spoke about how that prior to his, uh, his doctorate in anthropology, he served as a missionary in Papua New Guinea, and uh, he shared with us how he struggled that uh, with just watching the people that he worked with, that they would say they believed in Jesus Christ but continue to practice uh, some of their traditional uh, worship. Um, some of that was animism uh, or, you know, uh, belief in other gods, so a sort of a polytheistic approach. And so uh, he said he always struggled with watching how they approached uh, walking with Jesus. It was always Jesus and. So they would... They would trust Jesus for possibly the afterlife, but then for everything uh, that they were dealing with every day, their relationships, uh, trying to grow crops, trying to go to war, whatever it was, uh, they trusted everything but Jesus. I was fascinated by his talk because um, I had grown up in West Africa where I saw this same kind of syncretism take place. Uh, it's coming, we were all in the classroom coming as academics, you know, looking at these other cultures, not our own, but other cultures and assessing uh, how other cultures walk and behave. And um, I listened to him interestingly thinking to myself, gosh, you know, this is just like what I grew up with. Uh, there were uh, actual uh, idols made by people's hands that were, were positioned in significant places all around where I lived. And uh, you would walk by these idols, these actual idols that were made, these figurines, uh, either uh, the, the shape of a man or a shape of some animal. And there would be sacrifices, animal sacrifices and other sacrifices that would be offered to these idols. And as I sat there uh, thinking that uh, there's no way that I could really relate to these kinds of cultures, he made a statement that day that has resonated with me ever since. He said that, that the people... Uh, were happy to trust Jesus for the afterlife, but for every day living, they trusted and relied on ancestors and spirits in nature. Uh, when he had our attention, uh, he went on to tell us that Westerners were no different. And I said, what? All of us in the room had a collective gasp of, what? There was just a bunch of white Americans sitting in the room, and we all collectively went, huh? He said, sure, most Westerners did not worship spirits or ancestors, but they did rely solely on, but for everything else, they relied on uh, science and education. Jesus for the afterlife. So many Westerners trust Jesus for the afterlife, but for everything else, they trust technology. Guilty as charged. 
My, my confidence in Jesus being the way so much was strictly restricted to what he could do for me in the afterlife. For everything else, for relationships, for my income, my career, for everything, I trust technology. My, my knee-jerk reaction was to trust technology, science, education, over Jesus. It's possible to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. It might even be true for you that we have believed, you believe in for the afterlife. But for many of us, we trust our emotional health, our relationships, our income, our careers to everything but Christ. John 14 begins with this, this cry from Jesus to his followers. He says, verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. In other words, I'm the way for your, your troubled hearts, not just the afterlife. Don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you so. I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I'll come and get you so that you'll always be with me where I am. And you know the way, you know where I'm going and I love Thomas's response in verse 5 there. You can see it on your paper. No, we don't, Lord. <laughs> we have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Can you hear the tone of his voice? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, he says, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Thomas it's basically what Jesus is saying here in this text. Thomas, I'm the way. Don't look past me. Trust me. I'm the way. We're guilty as charged, though. We look for every other way except for what we can find in Jesus. I have been guilty of that so many times. I'm guilty of that yesterday, and I'll probably be guilty of that tomorrow that my first knee-jerk reaction will be to, to stress over something that I think I can solve instead of actually going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, what is your way out of this trouble? Jesus says to me, Brian, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm the way. John 10, you know, he screams this in so many different ways. Jesus said, yes, he says, I'm the gate. I'm the pathway. When he talks about the sheep, it's on the good shepherd. I'm the gate to the, to the, the sheepfold. I, I control who goes in and out. I'm the passageway. I'm the gate. Uh, the great declaration of Peter after he had uh, been, been filled by the Spirit of God, he says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. This is the constant declaration of all those who are documented in Scripture is that there is no other way except for Christ. John said this, in, we see this in, in 1 John 5, 11 and 12. It's a verse we should memorize. It's one that I memorized as a kid. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. There is this, you might call it an exclusivity, that only Christ is the pathway. He is the way. Not spirits in objects, 
not ancestors, not religion, not politics, not technology, not academics. Jesus is the way. Sadly, often our hearts are troubled because we don't trust Jesus to be the way, the pathway out of any kind of trouble. In the words of Elvis Presley, who did not apply this to himself, sadly, we need to put our hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. You heard that song before? Put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the sea. We need to trust the man who has control over the elements. And we need to put our hand in his hand and let him steer us through whatever trouble we might experience. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth. Stop for a moment and with me. Just try to try to see if you can really, really grasp what Jesus is saying here. First about the way. Now he's saying he's the truth. We cannot take this lightly. The word here that he's using is a word that actually is the word for absolute truth. In other words... Uh, this is true in every and any circumstance. In any matter under consideration, he is the truth. Absolute, universal truth. He's also saying here, this word can also be translated into this subjective truth, that he's a person of good character, that you can trust Jesus. So he speaks about truth from the perspective of uh, his character. He's trustworthy. He doesn't lie but also about his accuracy. In other words, he not, not only has good character, you can count on him, but everything he says is accurate and correct. Like a really good dad, uh, you know, my children, when they were younger, if they wanted to know and count on something, they would come to dad. If they were having an argument about something, they would come to dad and say, dad, listen, he's saying this, but what, what's true? Whatever I said, even if it was totally, you know, off, it's okay. That's it. That's it. Done. That's what's true. Jesus is saying here he's the way and the truth. Universal in all matters of the church, in all matters of the world, in every single aspect, he is accurate. And you can trust him. This statement of Jesus, uh, honestly, I mean, let, let's be honest is not received today, possibly in the way maybe you would have received it if you're, if you're my age, maybe that you would have received it when, when I was younger. Um, when I was younger, we had this uh, idea that the scientific method, you know, we, we had a sort of a healthy skepticism about everything. It was this, let's, let's examine this, let's see if it's true, let's prove it to be true. Jesus says he's the truth, okay, fine. Let, let's, let's see if we can actually... Uh, investigate this under the microscope and truly see if we can prove that what Jesus is saying is actually true. So we approached, we approached Jesus, we approached God's word, approached the church from this perspective, okay, prove it to me, show me, let me see. Let's look at all the empirical evidence and let's come to a conclusion. It's what I would call a healthy skepticism. And it was actually true of our society and has been at least prior to the 1960s where this is kind of from the, from the 1700s until up to about the 1960s, there was this prevailing empirical 
uh, drive to actually uh, prove uh, what claimed to be true. We, we operated from the perspective that there was a universal truth. There was, there was this uh, truth that was true for everyone, that if we just worked hard enough, did enough research, we could actually find this truth. And so we, we brought skepticism to the church. We looked at structures of the church. We looked at governments. And this was true from the 1700s all the way up till now and really resulted in, in unbelievable advancement. It was the product of the Reformation, uh, many of the freedoms we enjoy today, uh, technological advancements, tolerance, equal rights, so many of this, this way of thinking resulted in so many good things. Now, obviously, it didn't produce any life. Only Jesus can do that. But it did produce this, this healthy skepticism to question so as to derive at the truth. There's a new thinking gaining ground in our increasingly globalized world where the search for universal truth is not only uh, reduced, but it actually people don't believe that it can be found. That universal truth is, is, is too far from our reach to ever be discovered. That we don't have the capacity as human beings to actually be able to really discover universal truth. It's kind of a radical skepticism. It's a skepticism that actually believes there's really no future. It blurs the, the boundaries and lines of the absolutes versus our personal individual uh, perspectives. The boundaries have become very blurred. Uh, example, um, we don't want to label anyone with any kind of you know, strong labels of whether they are male, female, or whatever else. There's these blurred lines of, of how we look at people and how we assess what is correct, what's not, biological truths, or all these lines have become very, very blurred. We've also moved into uh, where we believe that language has um, a, a lot of power. We believe that it, it's not only powerful, that language is not only powerful, but it's, but it's also become dangerous, that in itself it's inherently dangerous. So, so, so consequently, uh, in our discourses, we believe that we need to create and maintain um, this, this deconstruction of, of everything that we say. Because, quote, language is dangerous, we need to actually control it. Uh, th thus, the, the birth of cancel culture, where what you say is, is, is deemed to be so powerful that it's dangerous, and so we need to control everything that comes out of your mouth. There's also this cultural relativism that we're seeing that's emerging uh, in, our, in our societies. Truth and knowledge are believed to have been constructed by the dominant discourses and language games that operate within society. This theory insists that although one can critique one's own culture from within the system, one can only do so using discourses available in that system which limit its ability to change. Find that it's now become offensive and and presumptuous of one person in one culture to feel like he can have an opinion about another culture. It's seen as judgment instead of actually critical uh, analysis. It's become offensive. In all of this, too, we've seen the loss of the individual. The notion of the autonomous individual is largely a myth. The individual, like every, everything else, is a product of powerful discourses and culturally constructed knowledge. So we question each other 
for how we arrived at where we are. What, what's fascinating to me is that so often now, uh, the church has is, is come under increasing, increasing attack, not so much for what they believe, but for how they came, how they came to believe what they believe. Not what they believe, but how they got there. And on top of that, who they are. So now, more than ever before, how you came to your conclusion is assessed. Not what you believe, that's okay, but how you got there is assessed. Also to who you are. If you're a certain color of skin, or if you're part of a certain demographic, maybe you have a certain level of income or a certain level of success, your word can, your, the value of your words can increase or decrease based on the color of your skin and your social standing in society. So now, truth, or what people are saying anyway, is assessed by how they arrived at that and what they look like, who they are in society. It's an interesting day we're living in, right? And we see it all around us. You may not realize and understand the philosophical foundations of how you got to where, you, where we are, but, but this belief is pervasive in society. It's the belief that we cannot actually ever discover universal truth, that truth is actually only found within the context of our group as we see it and as we process it and is a product of the social structures and power uh, structures, grids that are in place in that culture. And therefore, I have no right if I'm in a different group because there is no universal truth, quote, I have no right then to speak into your group. A study was done recently in the States um, and was, was actually the, the results of this research came out in 2019. It's a search about people's willingness to actually share the gospel with others. And what they, what they found was that um, half of all believing, so half of all believing millennials, people who are in a certain age category who who profess Jesus, who believe in Jesus Christ, half of them believe that it is, that it is wrong to tell others about Jesus. They believe that disagreement with others means judgment. It's interesting to me as we, as we look at John 14 and the words of Jesus Christ, to, to look also, too, of where Jesus came from. So I think we can all agree we're living in a, in a society now that's, that's changed, it's different, uh, people process uh, reality a little bit different uh, than, they, than they used to, at least when I was a kid. Uh, Jesus was part of a society not terribly different, though, than the one we're in right now. Politically, he was part of a Jewish style of leadership all right, that was allowed to function somewhat independently of the Roman Empire and their way of thinking. So basically, the Roman Empire was over uh, uh, Palestine where he was, uh, Galilee, but the Jews were allowed to still practice within that religious uh, political structure that they had been operating in for, for generations. Religious values were forced at the benefit of the Jew and at the expense of the Gentile. So there was this huge dichotomy of, of different peoples. There was the Jews, there was the Gentiles. There was extraordinary hate between the two. So there was incredible racism. Racism was common. And one's freedom to hold to a differing opinion and state it publicly was tightly regulated. Cancel culture was there in Jesus' day as well. 
Make no mistake that what was said was tightly regulated because they also believed that language was powerful. And we know this. Jesus' words were seen to be what? They accused him of actually that his father was Satan. You, you may recall this in Scripture. They said his, Jesus' words were anti-God, that his words were heretical. His words were dangerous. And they, they were dangerous to the future well-being of that system, that government, and that religious power structure of that day. If they weren't so dangerous, they would not have put him on the cross. Jesus was 100% counterculture and made statements of an objective truth. And then he reasoned why these statements were true. Wow. Let's not underestimate the power of the words of Jesus and the risk that Jesus took to actually speak those words. I'm the way? The truth? You know, the Jewish leaders of the day did not only just go, what? They went, what the heck? We're going to take you down. You see Jesus in this passage trying to convince his disciples. He says, look, I, I wouldn't tell you this if it weren't true. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I wouldn't say this to you if it weren't true. You can almost hear Jesus saying, so would I lie to you? Have I ever lied to you? He says, you guys know the way. Thomas says, <laughs> we don't know the way. <laughs> Please show us the way. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. They, they keep talking. So I think Thomas at this point takes a seat, and then you know Philip stands up, the other disciple, and says, Lord, just, just show us. Just show us the way. I just lost my presentation here on my iPad, but it's, it's coming back. Here we go. You should not trust technology. All right, here we go. So Philip, John 14, verse 8 says, Lord, show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. He said, I'm, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus says. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Philip says, look, look, <laughs> show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. That's verse 8. Jesus replies to him, like, almost indignant, Have I been with you all this time, Philip? Verse 9. And yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? He goes on. The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does, in me does his work through me. Just believe. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But praise the Lord, Jesus gives him an out. He's having all this conversation. Thomas can't get it. Philip can't get it. He's saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, look. He said, just believe that, I, that I'm in the Father. Just believe when you see me, you've seen the Father. He says, or at least. Now look at this last section of verse 11. Look on your paper there. Or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. If you, can't, if you can't accept my words, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, then, then maybe you can believe by, based on what I've done. At some point, when, when we can't accept the truthful claims of Christ, 
maybe, maybe we can accept what he's done in, in maybe our life or the lives of others. Surely this is evidence of his existence. If you're not a believer, you've never experienced Christ, possibly you can look at others who claim to know Christ and look at their lives. Has there been a transformation? Maybe you didn't know them before they came to Christ, but what have they told you about their life before Christ? I can tell you for me, I wanted to end my life. When I found Christ, all of a sudden I had joy. I mean, and no one could dispute that. That's my testimony. Jesus changed my life. You know, I can't parse all the Greek words. I can't, you know, I can't memorize the whole Bible. There's so many things that I don't understand. There's so many things that I cannot articulate. But what I do know is that Jesus changed my life. And I can also look at many of you, and I can be affirmed again that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because your life has been transformed. You're living in a way you used to never live. Your life's been changed. Life. I'm talking about vitality of life. I'm talking about living. I think all of us know what that means. This absolute fullness of life. If you can't actually handle the truth, maybe you can handle the lives that have been transformed. Maybe you can acknowledge that. Look, Jesus, when he talks about life here, he's talking about um, existence so that we're actually alive. So physical life, I can touch my body. Talk about that kind of life. We're also talking about fullness of quality. So Jesus here, when he's talking about life, he's talking about existence and quality. So not only am I alive, but I'm also living, if that makes sense. That's what he's saying here. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And not just in this world, but in the next world. I give you eternal life. Look, uh, this, this theme of you know, going from death to life because of Jesus Christ is all through Scripture. Uh, John 5 says this. They will never be condemned for their sins. This is John 5, verse 24. But they have already passed from death into life. And I assure you that a time is coming, indeed it is here now, when the dead will hear my voice the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. The dead will hear my voice, Jesus says. And when they hear my voice and listen, they will live. Wow. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us what? Say it with me. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead quality of life. Jesus says, I'm going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be killed, I'm going to rise again, but I've got to go so I can send you the Spirit of God. The, the constant assurance of Jesus beyond his declaration of truth was his promise of life. Wow. Maybe you can't wrap your heads around the truth, but surely you can see the life that only I can give. He promises peace. All through John 14 and, and, and John 15 and on and on and on. 
peace, joy, love. He promises this, this companion, the Holy Spirit, to walk with us daily. He says this. I love this. In John 14, look at that, if you will, in verse 17. When he talks about the Holy Spirit, he says, He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all what? Truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now. And he says this, and later he will be what? In you. There's this promise of, of, of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. The Spirit of God transforms lives and propels people into living. Hallelujah. Ha. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is all the way through. Jesus makes a case for him being the key to life. He says, look, I'm telling you all these things so that you will have joy, not just joy, but the fullness of joy. This is John 15, verse 11. I'm telling you all this. I want you to have peace. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Paul, Paul in Galatians 5 says this, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Look, 1 John 3 says, If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Look, as we come to this place in our life, we have to wrestle with these words. This is an absolute declaration of Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What are we going to do with that? I love the story in John 9 about the blind man who was, who was born blind from birth. Jesus heals him. He can see for the first time. And all of a sudden, what, what falls on him is the state. The state, the religious authorities, everything in authority and power falls on this guy and questions what happens to him. And he said, just admit that Jesus is a sinner so we can take him out. He says, listen, I don't know about this man, Jesus. <laughs> all I know, I love this is that I was blind. Now I can see. I was dead. Now I live. Wow. I can't argue your case, but personally, uh, for, I, I know for myself, I wanted to end it all. And God changed my life. It gave me the fullness of joy. Maybe you don't trust what I'm saying, uh, but possibly you can look at the evidence of what God has done in my life and the lives of others. And, and honestly, it would be great if we could examine our lives and what we believe. So look at your life today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and if you are a follower of Jesus, but look at your life. Examine your life and see if what you believe, the way you've lined up this world in your mind, has resulted in any kind of joy. I mean, really, truly examine the way you process life and then say, has this way of processing produced any kind of life? If it hasn't, then maybe there's something wrong with how you believe. Look, if you're really not producing the kind of life you wish you could, 
there's probably something wrong with your structure and your thinking and how you process. Maybe there's room for you to consider, you know, the option of Jesus. Maybe, some, maybe it's possible that you haven't thought of everything and that maybe you have, you have thought of issues incorrectly. Possibly the way you process life is wrong. You might need to ask yourself the question, when you look at your life and everything is going wrong, say, gosh, is my way of processing life, is this working for me? Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. We can be like Thomas. We can look past Jesus right now. What I'm asking you to do is to examine yourself in light of Jesus. What's working for you and what's not? Then maybe you can take that step and go into the cognitive world and really, really read and discover all the truths that are written and said about Jesus Christ and go deeper with him. But maybe all you can do right now is assess how you're living. Jesus invites us. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you with, with so much buzzing through our heads, Lord, of what we've either seen on a YouTube video or what we've heard from family or friends, or, Lord, what we've read. But, Lord Jesus, we, we come to you with, with our lives, and, Lord, we, we ask you to examine them today. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves this morning and say, is this really working? Lord Jesus, we, we come to you, Father, because you have declared absolutely that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Father, we, we, we believe. We trust you. Oh, Lord, we praise you so much for how you loved us so extraordinarily. Lord, that you came and gave your life at great... Lord, you spoke at great risk to yourself, Father, because you loved us and you continue to love us, Father. Lord, we worship you today, the way, the truth, and the life. This is Rico Vecca, and I am also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today, and it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.